Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Extinction Rebellion lawyer Fahana Yamin, recorded at Exeter Phoenix, August 2019. So the title of my piece is The End of Civilization or the End of Capitalism, Using the Ecological Crisis to Reconnect with Nature. There's a lot of discussion and a lot of anxiety about whether we're close to sort of societal collapse, ecological collapse. And I'm very much of the view that we are you know, reaching and may already have reached major, major tipping points. There's huge amounts of environmental destruction going on. I know you had a session on that last month. So I'm not going to talk so much about that, but much more on where we are now and what, in particular, Extinction Rebellion and other movements are saying in response to the situation we find ourselves in. So here goes. On the 16th of April 2019, I superglued my hands to the headquarters of Shell in London. I tried to get to the main door of their building, but fell short as I was surrounded by dozens of neon-jacketed policemen. I have been teaching and advising law for about 30 years, but that Tuesday I decided it was time to join those who were going to break the law. How else were we going to get people to pay attention to the climate crisis upon us? I was at Shell because I wanted people to know the company had prior knowledge of climate change as a problem and had covered up the devastating impacts of climate pollution and were continuing to fund oil exploration. But I also wanted to show how ridiculous it was that a law-abiding mother of four should walk away in handcuffs, which is what happened to me, while one of the world's major corporations remains unaccountable for their role in causing irreversible planetary destruction. My action was part of a much broader wave of peaceful protests by a new movement called Extinction Rebellion, which uses non-violent civil disobedience to highlight the global climate emergency. In my three decades, as I said, as an environmental lawyer, I've been working to create new treaties, work with the EU uh, Commission on new laws at the EU level, and national laws aiming at preventing exactly the kind of environmental damage we now face. But I joined Extinction Rebellion because I've come to realise that this emergency cannot be averted by government signing weak pacts, nor by tiny adjustments to business as usual. I've come to see that the present form of capitalism, based on never-ending extraction of natural resources and an ongoing appropriation of resources belonging to other communities around the world, cannot secure social and ecological justice. I think it's time we stop fixating on trying to modify capitalism. It is destroying the planet and creating injustices that cannot be fixed by policy tweaks here and there. We must use the ecological crisis that is unfolding to create a better civilization. This means we have to stop worrying about whether it's too late, a question I'm asked all the time, and it's time to stop asking that question and start overhauling our political system and engage with the present. Now, I think many people find engaging with the present really difficult. It's much easier to talk about the future, much easier to talk about the past. Very difficult and uncomfortable to be in the present. I think this overhaul needs to start by getting money and corruption out of our political systems as a way to limit access to government by big business and by financial oligarchs. 
we can then create nature-centric, regenerative economic systems that serve the many and not the few. I know I sound a bit like Jeremy Corbyn there. We need to orientate public investment away from subsidising fossil fuel exploration, which we still do in this country. We're one of the, I think, the second largest uh, subsidisers of fossil fuels in the EU. These benefit largely oil, gas and coal companies. And shifting our entire financial incentives to creating a nature-respecting economy that supports green jobs, improves health by reducing toxic air and water pollution, and prioritise human rights and well-being rather than GDP growth. Above all, we need to address the global injustices facing historically marginalised communities, and especially our young people. Their interests are being overlooked by those in power who won't live to bear the burden of a burning planet. As championed by Fridays for Future and Greta Thunberg, we need to change the voting age to 16 everywhere so young people can be empowered and have a voice in political decision-making. That's also why we need citizens' assemblies to allow ordinary people, young and old, to decide the scale and pace of transition on the basis of independent scientific advice. So XR has been phenomenally successful in the short space of time in alerting people to the need for fundamental changes. Extinction Billion's artistic, festival-like actions have put the need for global system change on the political map at the very highest level. In the UK, where XR was founded and is strongest, the whole country is now engaged in deep conversations about the need for radical change. Political party leaders from all sides stood up to congratulate Extinction Rebellion for their disruptive yet peaceful actions that shut down large parts of central London for 10 days, during which nearly 1,130 activists were arrested. I coordinated Extinction Rebellion's political team meetings with the government and with the London Mayor, and so I'm especially pleased with the rapid political progress that was made. On the 1st of May 2019, the UK Parliament passed a non-legally binding motion recognising the climate emergency. It then legislated a legally binding target of net zero by 2050, one of the first major industrialised countries to do so. This fast tracking would never have happened without XR working closely with the global strike movement that brought Greta Thunberg to the UK. This was key as she put pressure on all our political leaders. In 2019, Parliament, when it remeets maybe in the autumn, was supposed to reconsider the emergency motion. Likely, all of this is now, you know, I wrote it yesterday, um, is going to have to be revisited. So we were supposed to have the party conference seasons and a huge amount of work was being done to ensure that every single political party was going to have a, a radical climate change programme. Many of the campaigners, including parts of Extinction Rebellion, are pushing for some kind of Green New Deal, which is gaining traction in the US. And with other movements, uh, for example, This Is Zero Hour and the Sunrise Movements, which in the US have made a lot of progress, again, also by taking disruptive, peaceful actions. The Green New Deal seeks a social justice-based approach to rapid decarbonisation based on renewable energy, clean air and community resilience and the prioritisation of historically marginalised communities. Extinction Rebellion's UK's immediate political successes are underpinned by a change of national mood on the issue. After ignoring climate change for a long time, UK media are running climate stories every day in response to exiles telling the truth demands. Hundreds of councils, I think it's around 150, but the number keeps changing, have now passed climate emergency motions and local Extinction Rebellion groups are being formed every day, networking with other local activists, working on food, waste, health, air pollution and transport problems. They're designing actions that challenge the build-out of fossil fuel infrastructure, 
like the proposed new Heathrow runway, and unnecessary new roads, as well as tackling the marketing and advertising industry. Solidarity actions with the Amazonian people, for example, are planned for the coming week, raising awareness of many of their forest fires, including in other countries like Bolivia and Indonesia. Some workplaces, too, are radicalising in response to the activism through decentralised processes where people can get together and create new sector-specific groups. For example, Extinction Rebellion educators or Extinction Rebellion doctors. I think there's a proposal for Extinction Rebellion lawyers as well. I'm definitely not the only lawyer, as I know the talk says, the Extinction Rebellion lawyer. There's lots of us. <laughs> Extinction Rebellion is targeting fashion because it's the second most polluting industry in the world after fossil fuels, and asking its members and you to boycott buying new clothes because frugal is the new fashion. Hundreds of famous musicians, prestigious arts and cultural organisations like Tate Modern have recognised they need to do something more. They have launched initiatives called Music Declares or Culture Declares, announcing their commitments to tackling the music and ecological emergency. More importantly, people are having conversations in their workplaces and playgrounds even about how to eat less meat, how to fly less, and what it means to live in a climate emergency. The public now regard climate action as urgent. Certainly, the apathy and despair that marked the climate movement before April has shifted. UK NGOs and campaigners are raising their game as a result of the courageousness of the actions by many of the activists who took part in April and subsequently. As coordinator of the political team until June, I have to say I feel exhilarated by these achievements. We have in Extinction Rebellion three sort of big teams. The biggest teams are actions team and the movement team. Extinction Rebellion has a sort of decentralised structure. But I have to say that quite a lot of these positions as coordinators and people who are in those teams are members of my generation, I would say, who recognise that the need for younger people in the movement is vital. That's why XR Youth has become part of the Anchor Circle, uh, alongside activist groups from the Global South who are supported by Extinction Rebellion's International Solidarity Network. I think the two biggest injustices in the world right now are how we treat nature, and especially the indigenous communities and poor people who are often on the front line of ecological destruction, and how we treat young people. In both cases, we're leaving an enormous burden of irreversible changes, destabilization, possible collapse of food and agricultural systems for them to deal with, plus the mental anxiety and anguish and psychological burden that goes with having to fix uh, a broken system. Older people, I count myself in that now, older people have always tended to have a disproportionate share of economic and political power. But this has got worse, with baby boomers being expected to live longer and not having their life chances devastated by the global financial crisis of 2008, which has disproportionately impacted millennials and Generation Z. Young people are aware of how the current system has effectively disenfranchised them, and they know we have to change the system. Anyone born after 2013 is already likely to live uh, a lifetime beyond the current climate models, which is really scary because they're projecting out to 2100 in most cases. Their world map does not even look like the world of today. As a mother of four children, I worry about what the future holds for them. I think constantly about the legacy of my generation and how much hardship my children will face. This definitely makes the problem feel more pressing to me personally. My 11-year-old went on many of the school strikes with his friend and watched me supergluing myself to shell. Like all parents, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to keep my children safe and out of danger. 
And right now, that means rebelling against a way of life that is destroying their life chances and doing all I can to support global youth in their movement building. Excuse me. Writing about law and advising is no longer enough. We need everyone to undertake peaceful, massive disobedience to create enough political noise and generate the demand for a new political reality the whole world over. When we can't get there if we work in silos and factions, we need to unite and create a dynamic which often is referred to as a movement of movements and model the urgency and the unity we need right now. Greta Thunberg wisely said that when the rules are broken, you cannot rely on them and must change them. Many people are still trying to work within those rules and I admire them. We need all hands on deck, be it lawyers working on the Paris Agreement negotiations or plaintiffs bringing class actions by petitioning courts on the inaction and fraud being permitted potentially by big oil companies like Exxon and Shell. But while all these are necessary, they may take a long time and produce only incremental changes. Some climate litigation is already asking governments to do a little bit more of what we call mitigation, reducing greenhouse gases. And that's a deliberate choice by those lawyers who have taken those cases forward for their clients or for the NGOs. But I think it's not asking for radical enough changes to business as usual. For example, they're really asking for reparations for loss and damage already running into billions, the burden of which is increasingly being felt by the poor and by vulnerable countries that I often work with, like the Marshall Islands. The movement of movements must put forward these more radical demands and empower youth and marginalised communities everywhere. I think we need to be bolder and to work faster than courts can act right now. And they will not deliver the fundamental transformational changes we need in the next few years unless and until they're accompanied by people also breaking the law as part of a mass movement of movements based on civil disobedience. It's critical, in my view, that some of those who disobey the law are lawyers. Lawyers are often rightly regarded as part of the establishment and elites, but I believe lawyers also have a special role in mobilising mass movements. This is because their view of what, uh, whether our political system is just or unjust is based on solid expertise. They're adept at knowing how far and fast you can get changes within the established rules. They're also quite good at knowing when it becomes impossible to make those foundational rules work quickly. It's no coincidence that Gandhi and Nelson Mandela were lawyers who chose to use law-breaking as a key tool in their successful resistance to end imperialism and apartheid. I'm willing to ask lawyers to speak some fundamental legal truths, to say that the present form of capitalism and the rules that accompany it cannot be fixed with a tweak to a law here and there, because it's the whole system of nature destruction based on overconsumption that generates wealth for a few, which is creating the planetary emergency. But nor am I contemplating or asking for the abandonment of the entire international legal and national fabric. Legal wins like the 2015 Paris Agreement took a mammoth effort lasting 10 years of negotiations to get 200 countries to agree the very basic goal of planetary safety, which is a well below 2 degrees and 1.5 degree target. And they've also agreed to ratchet up their national climate commitments every five years. Paris is full of flaws. It isn't as perfect. It's not perfect. It's considerably weaker than it, we would have liked to, it to have been. But it does have significant real impacts on the real economy. That's why the climate deniers, the big oil companies, the Trump administration, its allies like Saudi Arabia, are trying now to undermine it because bolder commitments are required legally under the Paris Agreement in 2020, which is next year. 
Paris also contains legally significant provisions on providing finance and support for loss and damage being sustained by vulnerable countries facing climate devastation. My work with Frontline Small Islands has shown me that progress is possible and we cannot give up on them when they are asking us to fight for them in solidarity for their survival, which sadly may now include abandonment of certain islands that have been their homes for thousands of years. Survival is a powerful instinct, and it's hard sometimes to keep going. As Yates says, there is a fine balance between hope and despair, and we must use our failures as stepping stones for successes. I've come to this insight after a prolonged period of despair myself, which paralyzed me from the end of 2016 to late 2018 when I decided to join XR. I was burnt out from the Paris negotiations and had not fully emotionally processed the untimely passing of my mother, my father and my brother in close succession. The crunch came for me in October 2018 when the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released its special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees. Even though it was hopeful in some ways, it showed me we still had time to stop complete ecocide, it was also terrifying because it showed how little time we had to change things. I knew I had to do something quite different from my normal diplomacy and legal work that I had left behind. My disillusionment with diplomatic work had set in the previous year where we had put so much effort into a process called the Talanoir Dialogues, which took place under the UN Paris Agreement negotiations. These dialogues were intended to raise climate ambition but it made me furious to see countries like Norway, the UK and Germany, which often regard themselves as climate leaders, not doing enough to tackle their existing climate commitments. At the annual UN meeting on climate change in Bonn at the end of 2017, it became clear to me that polite diplomacy wasn't going to result in delinking the global economy. And we needed new political movements filled with outrage and new ideas to topple the toxic forms of nature-debasing capitalism. I thought these movements needed establishment people like me who could say something like, this old way of doing things isn't working. These rules are not adding up. We need to break them and to be taken seriously. That's when I joined Extinction Rebellion. On reflection, I realised I had, in fact, been part of the old way of doing things since the very beginning of my own legal career. When I went to the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, a very long time ago, fresh out of law school, I learned there was always a space for creative thinking in law and that wordsmiths can birth new norms and rules that limit polluters and protect natural resources. But when I think back to that time, I realise I didn't appreciate the scale of destruction unleashed by global capital on nature and frontline communities defending it, nor how quickly countries would export their dirtiest industries to China, India and other developing countries who in turn adopted the same extractive mode of capitalism. Like much of the climate movement, I worried about how I would look saying something as radical as the system is broken. I chose to play within the rules. I focused, I think, too much on the inside political negotiations, drafting words that papered over the cracks and greenwashed uglier realities, and not enough on the outside movement-building dynamics changing underlying political realities. We saw climate change as a technical managerial problem and thought solutions based on scientific and economic expertise would be enacted by governments in the long-term interests of their citizens. But I think we didn't realise that we had left out or three critical elements from the equation. How we mobilise on a mass basis, how we respect their human rights and how we restore nature. 
In hindsight, I understand that you can't do it all alone through elite advocacy based on reports from experts, particularly not on issues which require such fundamental and structural change as climate change does. Of course, there are people in social justice movements at the time talking about more radical system change solutions and rejecting all policy changes at the UN and climate negotiations as incremental and sellouts. I worried that they were making the perfect the enemy of the good. I believed incremental steps would indeed build confidence and provide an evidence base for more radical steps. Surely some agreed action was better than nothing at all. There is no point throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I told myself year after year. There was also a deeper reason for my attachment to the insider game. I so wanted to believe that our democracy, our governments elected on existing political processes, could provide transformational changes that were fair and pro-poor. I believed you couldn't have system change without at least some basic agreed rules, institutions and processes that would make the process work. But now looking back, I see that our failure to build movements to challenge the corruption and power of incumbents of existing economic ways of growth, our failure to centre our vision on human rights and nature drew energy away from the critical steps we needed to take. I regret that I didn't see those calling for system change as closer allies. Their points were totally valid and they were right to be sceptical of government negotiations going on that were resulting in diminished chances of planetary safety. I think looking back at my career, it's not over yet, but anyway, <laughs> I realised I was mesmerised by the appeal of using traditional forms of power and felt I could use it to change the system itself. As an immigrant who wanted to succeed, I wanted to fit into the system and to make it to the top and be seen as a leader, not only to make my parents proud of their sacrifices, but also because as a feminist in the 80s and 90s, I wanted to smash the many glass ceilings that held women, working mothers and people of colour like me back. Like Melanie Griffiths in the film Working Girl, I enjoyed wearing my power suits and designer clothes. And tired and exhausted by long working hours, I felt entitled to a couple of nice holidays abroad a year. I didn't connect my personal lifestyle choices, my income, my long-term security with my climate politics. I didn't think I needed to be a different person and have a different lifestyle and aspirations because I didn't associate my values, my lifestyle, my career my strategy for changing things, with a system that was so wrong. Now I've done basically a complete personal 180 degrees. It's not system change or personal change, it's both. And now I realise that what I aspired to as a young lawyer, a feminist wanting equality in a toxic nature-depleting system, is in fact part of the problem. Our way of thinking about a good life is really wrong. We are not born greedy, apathetic and selfish. These qualities are nurtured and rewarded by the current form of global capitalism. We fight each other to get to the top of a system that is based on divide and rule and the destruction of nature. Our nation-based political systems are becoming more nationalistic by the day as we build legal and physical walls to keep out the others. We have to reject forms of domination and othering. We have to reject the centrality of consumerism, which equates well-being and personal happiness with buying more and more stuff produced through abusing the planet and other people's human rights. We need to reconcile personal change with system change, having power and status in the current system and recognising, but then also rejecting it to co-create a better world. It's easier to say these things now that I'm 54. I have found my voice and the courage to speak my truth as a mother, as a lawyer and as an activist. If I had to give advice to people and activists today who want to use the law to fight injustice, I'd say, yeah, that's great. 
the law alone isn't going to work. So don't forget to be an activist in your own community. I'd say there are tough times ahead. Sorry. Building new communities where people and nature coexist will need committed, courageous people to fight many different battles for a very long time to come. So we have to learn about self-care and how not to burn out. We have to surround ourselves with family and friends who share our inner journeys and our professional ones. It took 25 minutes for the police to unglue me from Shell's offices, but it will take a much longer period of time to do the work our planet so desperately needs to build new forms of alliances, new forms of culture that, respect, uh, that, that, that help us respect each other and nature. Sadly, time's not our, on our side, and we need to use it well. Thank you. Um, my main question is, so I've got a friend and she seems quite nervous and stuff about climate change and what are your tips and stuff on not getting too nervous about it but still like listening about it and acting on it? I really don't have a very good answer other than feeling the rising level of anxiety in our nation's children and globally actually. And I think one of the ways in which we can test whether the system is broken or not is simply ask if our future generations really believe in it and I think that's why so many youth are out striking because they have already experienced the depth to which the system is broken and they don't understand or accept how it's going to be fixed other than through action so I feel like in many ways you're ahead of the curve um, in channeling also some of that anxiety into action I think that one of the most important successes is actually the way in which the global strike movement evolved from October sort of onwards. Actually, you know, um, Greta launched it in August, but it really only took off from October, November onwards, the same time as Extinction Rebellion was taking off. So I think there's tremendous potential for leadership from ordinary children. So I, I think we can't say we've got easy solutions, but I think getting young people involved and asking them to imagine the world and use their creativity, their lack of cynicism, their hope um, in ways to hold politicians to account and demand that you all have the vote at the age of 16 will really change things. I really hope that um, you, know, you guys can hold on and not get more and more anxious, although I realise it's, it's hard not to watch the news and be terrified. I'm part of Extinction Rebellion in Exeter. I'd like to ask you, from an, a member's point of view, what you think about the action that's planned in October, um, which is about shutting down Westminster, given that Westminster may well be shut down. Should we change our tactics and should we alter our plans around that? So in March, before the April Rebellion, there was a lot of discussion because you remember the deadline for Brexit was originally the 31st of March. We had a lot of discussions internally amongst the strategy group, particularly the political group, about the risks of whether there would be other movements taking advantage and rising up at that time. And I think now, given what's happened, the likelihood of that is far bigger. So all I can say is actually that this discussion is starting to take place. There's a strategy process going on. I'm not involved in it this, this time. But I feel like actually we're in a, a much more dangerous period. I personally think that we're already seeing, yeah, it's essentially very akin to fascism taking over. That's what it looks like. But I think 
It's also very different, a rebellion taking place now, given what the police have said and given where the complexion of this government, frankly, is. We now have a prime minister who ordered the water cannons. Uh, I do worry about what might happen, but at the same time, you know, I think there's tremendous wisdom in the hive mind and that people can and should vote with their feet and vote also for safer ways of upholding democracy, um, which is, I feel, a fundamental reason why I joined Extinction Rebellion is actually the, the third demand about citizens' assemblies is essentially reinventing democracy you know, and, and supplementing and uh, taking that further. So I feel like we should all be out on the streets in some way supporting that. How do we appeal to people on the right of politics to take action against climate change? By saying that this is an issue that affects everyone, whether you're left-wing or right-wing, those categories don't really make much sense. I did a little quick analysis, which was mentioned in the Gove meeting, if you watched it. For the last 50 years, we've had roughly 30 years of Tory-led governments or Tory governments, and in this country, 20 years of Labour. And both of them have destroyed the environment. Both of them have shared a paradigm of GDP, nature-extractive growth. Everyone needs to find solutions. The only comfort I have is the UK is quite special, you know, because it has a cross-party support for radical climate action. We sort of forget that because we want to go even faster and even quicker. But I think, you know, we had the Climate Change Act in 2008, which was actually set up um, and created by NGOs, Friends of the Earth, many other movements, who then got the Tories to propose it, and then Labour and Blair took it over. So actually there's possibilities for consensus and for unity and for long-term national thinking as well. I can't give up completely. And the best hope I have is that we need to ask really searching questions of, of the Tories right now. Like, what is their version of the Green New Deal? What do they think will get us to those radical reductions? I think there's always a possibility of creating that, but I have to say I do have a lot of misgivings about this particular government at this point in time. It's got climate deniers and people who are fundamentally anti-democratic and who are favouring a deal with the US. So, yeah, tough times ahead. We're going to be going into the bar. You're more than welcome to come along and, and ask some more questions, but I think let's just give a big round of applause for um, a fantastic evening. Thank you. Thank you.